Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is the writer Isabel Allende. She describes herself as a novelist, a feminist, and a philanthropist. She's one of the most widely read authors in the world, having sold more than 75 million books. Chilean-born in Peru, Allende won worldwide acclaim in 1982 with the publication of her first novel, The House of the Spirits, which began as a letter to her dying grandfather. Since then, she's authored more than 25 best-selling and critically acclaimed books, including The uh, Daughter of Fortune, Island Beneath the Sea, Paola, The Japanese Lover, Long Petal of the Sea, The Soul of a Woman, and her latest novel, Violetta. In 2014, President Barack Obama awarded Allende the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. In 2018, she received the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters from the National Book Foundation. The Isabel Allende Foundation invests in the power of women and girls to secure reproductive rights, economic independence, and freedom from violence. I reached Isabel Allende last week at her home in California. Here's the first part of my conversation with Isabel Allende. Well, your latest book begins and ends with uh, with a pandemic. You know, the Spanish flu up to the current pandemic was, was I, I guess, very timely. Was, was that something you set out to do? No. I, I start all my books on January 8th, and I started Violeta on January 8th, 2020, when the pandemic was not here yet. And I had already written like a chapter or two when the pandemic hit, and then I realized that my character is born in one pandemic. It would be only natural to end it, to end it in the, in, during the COVID, to bookends for 100 years of history. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Uh, you uh, very interested to learn this. You you begin your books on January eighth. What? Why do you do that? Discipline and uh-huh. superstition. Yeah, it's a good day to start. <laughs> I have started all my books on 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 that day, <laughs> and my first book was very lucky. And I thought, well, maybe the second one will be lucky if I started on the same day, and I did so. But in time, it became a matter of discipline because my life got really complicated. And uh, and now having a day to start allows me to clear my calendar, to be prepared. It's good. Well, not that it matters, but that's my birthday. So that, uh, well, oh, that's, that's a nice... happy uh, birthday, then. <laughs> I'll, uh, now, every day on my birthday, I'll be thinking, well, please, Isabel Yende is me. starting her new yeah. book. That's a, that's a wonderful connection. Um, so, so you mentioned uh, House of the Spirits. Uh, lucky, obviously, for you, it opened doors, I imagine. What uh, What did that do for you? It changed my life. I had no life to speak of. I was working, administering a school, living as an immigrant in Venezuela, as a political refugee in Venezuela. My marriage was collapsing. My children were going to university, so I felt very empty. And then I started writing this thing that didn't have a shape and ended up being my first novel, and by a stroke of luck, it became very successful in Europe from the very beginning. And that meant that I could eventually quit my day job and become a writer. So it changed everything for me. You were in Venezuela at the time, were you? Yes. Yeah, and then eventually came to the United States. Um, this was, uh, you know, you could call it exile, right? Uh, the, the political situation shifted suddenly, and... Uh, out of the country you were. I wonder what your thoughts are on, and now, you know, it's many years later, having lived in Venezuela and the United States. Well, uh, I think that um, without the military coup in 1973 that really 
changed uh, the direction my life was going, uh, I would still be a journalist in Chile, probably a retired one and a happy one. But um, living in, in Venezuela all those years, I, I think I was sick with nostalgia, and I invented in my mind a country that was no longer there, because when, by the time I could return to Chile, and the dictatorship lasted 17 years, so that was a long time, um, everything had changed, and I had changed too. So the country that I remember is not there anymore. Yeah. By the way, what did you think of the latest elections in Chile? Well, I'm delighted. I think it's a, it's a scary time because everything is shifting really fast. The idea is to create a new constitution, and uh, they are revising everything. Do we want a, what kind of country do we want? A federal country? What, what kind of country? Uh, now today, I think they are discussing the role of the armed forces. Do we want to have an army or not? So all this is um, really interesting. And the new president is young, um, very moderate. Um, he's, he represents the left of the country. And in Chile, the president lasts four years and cannot be reelected immediately. Can be reelected only once, but they have to skip, skip four years. And that means that the country has gone like a pendulum from the right to the left, from the left to the right. And, and nothing gets done. So I don't know how much this young man will be able to do in the time that he has with all the changes that they are proposing. And he doesn't have a majority in Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what um, it's happenstance, right? The, the coup happened and, and off you went. What do you think that's... What do you think that's done to you, uh, uh, being an immigrant and uh, living in a foreign country, for example, um, you know, writing in Spanish but uh, speaking in English, for example? Well, my first novel I wrote in Venezuela, three of my books in Venezuela, where we speak Spanish. And um, in a way, I think that the, the impulse to write came from being uprooted, trying to find roots in, in the stories that I had heard as a child, the stories I had left, the people I had left behind. It was an exercise in nostalgia, I would say. And um, in a way, also, being away from my country has given me a, a, a more a sort of perspective of the world. I have traveled extensively because of my books, and before, because I was the daughter of diplomats. So I have also experienced the the role of a refugee and of an immigrant, which are different. And and I think that gives me a lot of material for my writing. Mm -hmm. Refugee and immigrant are different. Uh, you know, um, tell me about that. What you've experienced both? Well, um, a refugee is someone who's running away from for, for his or her life. Uh, usually, cannot choose where they go. They just need to get out. They are in despair. Um, usually, you know that most refugees are women and children, and they are received with hostility everywhere. And it's it's very very hard. Um, according to statistics, a refugee spends between 17 and 25 years away from the country of origin. And when they return, if they return, usually they can't bring with them their families because the children have grown up in another place. And they don't feel any, any connection to the old country. 
Mm-hmm. And when they return, they don't have a place there either because everything has changed and they are older. Uh, an immigrant is a different situation because usually they are young and they go to another place with the idea of staying, planting roots, uh, prosper. Um, they have a vision for the future. They are not tied to the past. So um, the, 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 the emotional situation of an immigrant is very different from that of a refugee. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, people are being displaced, uh, refugees, very poignant now with, with the situation in Ukraine, seeing these pictures once again of people fleeing. Yeah. Uh, must be very yeah. Every time there is war, there is occupation, violence, or, or uh, poverty, extreme poverty, which is the case in most of Central America. People have to get out for their lives. Mm-hmm. You've said that, uh, first of all, you didn't believe that a, you know, a coup could take root in, in Chile, and I, I, I did a surprise you it lasted 17 years. Yes, I don't think anybody except the military maybe thought that it could last so long, uh, because we did, Chile didn't have a tradition in military coups or, or, or caudillos, the chieftains that, that um, were a curse in the rest of Latin America. So uh, we, we did not we didn't know anything of how of how repression worked and how how it would change the country. And they, um, the government of Pinochet established a neoliberal economic system that was extreme, extreme neoliberalism that was possible because the workforce was repressed. So there was ample freedom and opportunities for capitals, for capital and for empresarios and for business, and, uh, and also very cheap labor, because uh, and there were no political parties or nobody representing the labor force. So that was, in a way, a very artificial way of implanting an economic system that eventually collapsed. But, um, but it changed the country completely. Hmm. So now, when we, with this new constitution, the idea is to change the constitution that was imposed by the dictatorship. Uh, that, that constitution was amended several times during the democratic governments that followed the dictatorship. But, if, but basically, it remained uh, the same, in which the, 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 the state has very little input and everything is in private hands. Mm-hmm. So that created extreme wealth in a few people, a very small percentage of the population, a huge middle class living on credit, and, and poverty that is hidden. So, so some ex- extreme problems that need to be dealt with by the current government, as, as you said. Yeah. So, so after those 17 years, I guess it could have been that you could go back, but at, at extreme change, you know, Chile is a different place. Um, well, I could have gone back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was married to an American, and I was trying to sponsor my children to bring them here. So the idea of returning to Chile, I would have had, I would have had to return alone, not mm-hmm. with my children. They were brought up in Venezuela. So you're uh, you're in the United States. You obviously, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts still today about the the role of the U.S. government in in that coup and others in South America? Well, the CIA was was involved. In, um, in destroying all the leftist movements in the whole of Latin America. And, they, for example, in Central America, they, um, they supported brutal 
to corrupt governments um, that it was, this was during the time of the Cold War, but in Central America in 1980, there were genocides that were uh, either ignored or supported by the United States government. So now, when people have collapsed governments that don't work at all, totally dysfunctional, and people run away and they come to ask for asylum at the border, well, this is a consequence of, of historical events. Mm. I want to uh, turn to talking about uh, Violetta, the latest book. Um, you have said that uh, inspiration for the book was uh, came about with your mother's death a couple of two or three years ago. Uh, is there anything of your mother in Violetta? Of course, Violetta's her own woman, but uh, is there anything of your mother in, in that character? Well, like Violetta, my mother was born in 1920 from an upper class in a country that looks very much like Chile, although the country's never mentioned the name of the country. And um, she, um, she comes from a Catholic, authoritarian, male chauvinistic, conservative family. And she's brought to be a young lady who would be one day somebody's mother and wife. But Violetta escapes that role. And, um, and my mother did also. She, mar- she married the wrong man, my father and was able to annul that marriage and became a single woman with three kids. And then she remarried, but um, with, 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 with another, with, my, my father was a diplomat, and then she married another diplomat. But, the, 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 but unlike like Violetta, my mother was beautiful, smart, with a sense of irony, um, talented in many ways. She also had a sort of financial vision, you know. She could, she could have made money if she had had any money of her own to invest. But nobody paid any attention to what she had to suggest. She was very powerless in a way. And uh, that's a big difference between Violeta and my mother. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I've read that you have... Uh, Something like twenty-four thousand letters, you, you know, from your mother uh, in in boxes. Well, they are not only from my mother; they are yeah. my my mother's and copy of my letters. Ah, yes. So, so, so because because yeah. I would keep copy of my letter, my daily letters to her, and then at the end of the year she would give me back. Uh, so I kept her letters and my letters, and uh, and they are in boxes year by year. Very impressive. Yeah, that's that's a treasure. That's really a treasure. You, <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know if that's a treasure for anybody else except me. <laughs> well, certainly for you, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you go back and reread any of those? No, except uh-huh. when I have written memoirs, then uh, then I go back to the boxes and see what, when, and how things really happened, because the letter. It records the emotion of the moment, not only the events, but how we felt about it. Yeah. Oh, that uh, that is a wonderful thing. Um, do you carry that on to the next uh, generation? Is there? I mean, we're in a different no, time now. No, right? no. I think that my my son will burn the whole thing. <laughs> Why would he give that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope he keeps them. That's a, that'd be a treasure. <laughs> You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams and uh, my conversation with Isabel Allende, uh, one of the most widely read authors in the world. Um, she describes herself as a novelist, a feminist, and a philanthropist. Her latest book, a novel, is called Violetta. And we'll have more with Isabel Allende following this break. 
Coverage of the 2022 Utah Legislature is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. Support also comes from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, presenting Symphony Concertante, Opus 81, Joseph Youngen and Requiem Opus 9, Maurice Du Reflet, with guest organist Bradley Welch, Saturday, March 19th at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Danes Concert Hall. Details at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Did you know that people tend to modify the way they talk to match the person they're speaking to? This mirroring of speech patterns is called entrainment, and it's a vital part of communication between conversation partners. While there is substantial research on entrainment in adults, there is a significant gap in understanding how children develop entrainment skills and the impact of certain communication disorders on childhood entrainment. Continuing to learn more about conversation patterns in both typically developing children and adolescents and those with disorders like autism spectrum disorder can help educators and professionals support their development and ensure that all children are able to engage in quality conversations. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. The West's relationship with water is complicated, and it's only getting more complex. Last year was considerably dry, maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. I'm Alex Hager, reporting on the water issues that define the western U.S. Listen for stories about the Colorado River Basin on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest today is the writer Isabel Allende. Uh, her books include uh, The House of the Spirits, Daughter of Fortune, Island Beneath the Sea, Paola, The Japanese Lover, A Long Petal of the Sea, The Soul of a Woman, and her latest is a novel. It's called Violetta. And uh, here is uh, the second part of my conversation. I reached Isabella Allende last week at her home in California. I want to talk about your, your feminism. You're known as a feminist a long time. You you talked a little bit about your mother and how... Uh, you know, how she was... Uh, the system, you know, she was controlled. It left her... Her husband uh, went back home, and, and now her, her father, I guess your grandfather, took over the finances, that sort of thing. Uh, is uh, a teenager, is that when you became a feminist? I think that I was born when I was very young, I mean, in six years old, when I was expelled from the German nuns where I was in kindergarten because I was already rebellious. <laughs> so I, I did rebel against authority in general, male authority in particular, and I saw my mother very vulnerable. My, I wouldn't say a victim because a victim is someone that cannot escape the situation, and she could have. But she was very vulnerable and, and powerless in every way, and I didn't want to be like her. So, of course, I didn't know the word feminism, but I was already very rebellious. And I must have been in my, I don't know, 14 years old, 13, when I discovered that that there was something called feminism. And by age 17, when I started reading 
feminist books from from Europe and the United States, I realized I wasn't a lunatic, that there was a movement out there, millions of women thinking what I was thinking. So you uh, co-founded a feminist magazine at Paula, right? Um, yeah, I, I work there, yes. Uh, you, um, you, I'll quote you, you say you could channel, you found you could channel your anger into action wrote a series of satirical columns on the patriarchy called Civilize Your Troglodyte. That's <laughs> well, that was one of the columns, yeah, but I did a lot of reporting. Yeah. Not, not only me. I mean, the, the, we were three, three women there, uh, and we reported about all those things that had been kept hidden. I mean, and nobody talked about, about abortion, divorce, rape, incest, uh, contraception, you name it, all those things that, that were talked about in gossiping or, or, or rumors, but nobody ever uh, published anything about it. Hmm. You've talked about how, uh, I saw an interviewer, you talking about the, your work at the magazine, and you, you know, did reporting, serious reporting, etc., but you, you said you found that uh, humor could be, a, I guess, a weapon, a way to... Way to it is a weapon, yeah. Tom, mm-hmm. it yes. is. You know that. I mean, when you can make fun of something, that that can really be. Um, first of all, people listen because they don't feel any aggression in humor usually. And I would make fun of men, and they loved it. They loved it. Okay. Yeah, yeah they you would can... say, "I have a friend who's just like that." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or with a friend. They recognize at least the friend, right? Maybe if not themselves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What uh, what do you think about feminism today, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the Me Too movement and where we are today? Well, there's a new wave of young women who are out in the streets pushing uh, change. Uh, for, for a long time, I felt that feminism had uh, somehow frozen in time. And, uh, and now uh, I see when women, especially now that women in the United States feel that their rights are threatened, the right to, for abortion, for example. Now they, they, we will see a reaction to that, and they are reacting already. And um, the, this new energy was necessary. You know, the final goal of feminism is to replace the patriarchy, and that will take a long time, and we need a critical number of women engaged in this for that to happen. And I think that this new wave of young women can make that possible. You think it is possible with the new wave? Yes, yeah. not not mm-hmm. not right now. I won't see it, but it is going to happen. Yeah, I was uh, I was tickled to to read in, in, in a interview I was reading. You said for years you wanted to write a romance novel. Um, I am not good at you, it. You, I'm yeah. terrible. <laughs> so so you were th- a, a kind of a regular romance novel. Uh, uh, that we would find. Why, why, were, why aren't you good at it? Well, uh, the whole thing started because when I, we were working in this magazine in Chile, we had to compete with a magazine that came from Miami. And that, the, the, the whole, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing about that magazine was that it had in every issue a short story by a, a romance writer in Spain called Corinne Tellado. And it was more or less always the same story, very romantic. That you, you know, the typical uh, green-eyed, big-breasted virgin that meets CEO in a para, in, in a tropical island, and uh, he, well, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I read a few of those, and I said, well, I can write this, and and so that we can compete with this other magazine. 
and I tried. And I can't because I don't believe in the formula. I don't believe in the, in the virgin with big breasts and green eyes. Never seen one. Yeah, so uh, you and you said you, you just you, you just couldn't get through yeah. it without laughing at the at the hero, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's probably to our benefit that you're not good at the regular romance <laughs> novel, right? We we love your books uh, as they are. I want to talk about the Allende Foundation. Um, I was I was reading this is a spectacular story about how this came about. You were in India, understand? Yes, after my daughter died. I uh, wrote a book called Paula, and the income that came from that book, I put it aside in another account because I didn't want to touch it. It didn't belong to me. It belonged to Paula. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do with it until I went in a trip to India. And we, were, um, we had rented a car with a driver, and we were in Rajasthan in some rural area. And uh, the car, the engine got very hot. hot so... Um, the driver stopped, and a friend of mine who was traveling with us and I went to a group of women that were standing by at, at a certain distance, and they were really very, very poor, women and a bunch of little children, some of them naked. And we, we tried to communicate the way women communicate. We didn't have a, a common language, but we touched, and, and, and we smiled, caressed the kids, and at one point, we gave them a bunch of bracelets that we have bought in a market. And they were delighted with that. And so, so when we were leaving, one of the women gave me a, a little parcel of rags. And I thought she wanted to give me something in exchange for the bracelets. And I said, no, 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 it's not necessary. I tried to give it back. And she wouldn't take it. And um, then I sort of opened the, the rags, and there was a newborn baby in there. I mean, it, I don't think it had a, it was a day old, really. The umbilical cord was still raw. And uh, I kissed the baby, blessed the baby, tried to give it back. She wouldn't take it. And in that moment, the driver came running. And, and he picked up the baby, gave it to the first woman who was closer, closer and, and pushed me into the car. And when he had already started the car, when I reacted and I said, why, why would that woman want to give me a baby and he said it's a girl who wants a girl and that that sort of made me realize the fate of that baby and that mother that was willing to get rid of the baby because she couldn't even feed her and and i couldn't do anything about it at that point so i decided that the income of paula and my future books would go to a foundation to help mothers like that mother and little girls like that little girl. Well, it's uh, uh, Isabel Allende Foundation if you want to, to help there. That's a great work you're doing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a, a TED Talk I, I watched. Um, you you uh, talked about aging and that mm-hmm. th- there were some some great benefits from aging. I wonder if you could t- tell me about, <laughs> about, that, about that. Look, I'm 80 and I married for the third time at 77. So let me tell you, Tom, you can really age in a very nice way. You, oh, oh, you are, it seems like. Well, look, I have, I'm, I have enough resources for the basic needs, and that's really important. Yeah. And I have good health, and I have love. 
not only the love of my husband, but I, have, I live in a, in a small community, let's say. I, I, I know all my neighbors by name. If I cook too much of something, I will give it to my neighbor who is 95 and she lives alone. So there is, there is a sense of, the, of belonging that, and of purpose that is really important as you age. Mm-hmm. You uh, you divorced, I think, in your seventies, and married in your in your seventies. Uh, I think uh, some friends uh, said, "Well, why are you why are you divorcing in your seventies? I don't know what they said about your remarriage. How's how's that been?" <laughs> well, when I divorced, everybody said, "Why would you do that after twenty eight years with this man?" Well, because it takes a lot of courage to stay in a relationship that is not working, and it le- it takes way less courage to live alone. So we, we divorced, very very friendly and civilized divorce, and um, and then I, I I bought a very small house with one bedroom and moved in with my dog, and then eventually another husband landed on my lap. <laughs> I, is this true? I, I read that he heard you on the radio. Yeah, on NPR actually. He did, and and <laughs> how did it? It, it, yeah. it that takes he, a lot he of courage heard me to. He on the radio and started emailing my office morning and evening for five months Wow! every day until finally I went to New York for a Planned Parenthood event and I, I thought, well, I should meet this guy. So I did and we, we just liked each other very much and he, three days later, he proposed he wanted to marry me. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding? Why would I get married at this age? I'm not planning to have children. And... Um, but he insisted, and he eventually sold his house, gave away everything he owned, and moved to California. So we've been living together ever since. Well, uh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. That's, that's, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I want to talk just briefly about uh, writing. You, you, I love this quote. You say, half the job is to show up. So yes. <laughs> that's why I have January 8th. Yeah. As a day to start, to show up. Show up. So on January 8th, you show up, you start writing. I and, show up no matter what. And then I'm sure there's difficulties along the way. I guess you keep going. Of course there are difficulties, especially at the beginning when I don't know where I'm going. And, uh, and I just have to, again, show up. And, you know, I, I have learned that I have enough experience to write about almost anything if I'm giving given enough time to, to research and to just put the pieces together. Hmm. And you've said your, your characters, uh, they appear to you. you. I guess you just you follow them. What do you do? When I start a book, if I am writing a historical novel, I have enough information, I have researched so that I have like a platform or a stage where I will move the characters, but I don't know the story yet and I don't know the characters, they will start appearing slowly as I need them. And some of the protagonists may just fade away, and some of the secondary characters may surprise me and become protagonists. That has happened many times. And what I have learned is to just relax and let it happen. Don't try to, to, to squeeze the story into a previous idea that I might have, a straight jacket in a way. If I let it flow, I make a lot of mistakes, and it takes a longer time because I don't have a script. But, the, but then 
the result is like a conversation, the way we talk in, in, in the sense that I can connect with my reader in a more natural and organic way if I let the story ha- just, just happen. Do you, uh, do you, I don't know if you uh, go back and encounter your books or maybe through the, through, you know, through the experiences of your readers and are, uh, maybe you're surprised by the things you didn't think were there when, when you were putting it together? Of course, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the few times that I re- read a review, and I read very few, I, the, the reviewer usually finds in the text what I had no idea that was there. Uh, because the, the writing is it's a very, um, how can I say, organic process that happens more in the belly than in the mind. So when, when a story is analyzed and, and deconstructed and they find meaning in, in everything, I'm confused because I didn't know I had written something like that. I thought it was a much simpler thing. Um, but what, what I have found out in all these years is that readers, men and women, but mostly women, women, young women, they, they find um, themselves in the stories. And they write to me and they say how I changed their lives, and they explain why. And I always say, I didn't do anything except put in words what was already in you. So you connected to the story because this is what you feel, what you think, who you are. Otherwise, there is no connection. So my job is just to to write it down, but it's always inside them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a wonderful connection to have. Yeah. Um, by the way, did you did you start a book uh, this past January eighth? Yes, I did. Uh, anything? But because I am doing the this book tour on Zoom and email and, and phone, I'm doing it for several countries and several languages. I have been very busy, but I started it, and by March I should be able to just concentrate on the new book. Ah, very good. Anything you want to tell us or can tell us about no, that? No, I can't okay. talk about okay. something that is in progress. Okay, I didn't think so. I just thought I'd try. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, finally, um, you, I, I was reading an interview. You said you're optimistic about the future. That 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 the case? Optimistic? Look, I have lived a long life, and I have seen the world get better, not worse. Uh, right now, <clears throat> things seem pretty bleak. <laughs> I remember the missile crisis. <clears throat> I remember the Cold War. I remember so many things that people forget. And uh, we have now more information, more education, more technology, less po- poverty. We are better than we were when I was born. I was born in the middle of the Second World War during the Holocaust and the atomic bombs, before the Declaration of Human Rights, before feminism. Yeah, so reason for optimism. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, we'd, we've reached the, the end of our time uh, here. What a pleasure it's been speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Our thanks, of course, to Isabella Allende uh, for that conversation recorded that last week. Her latest book is called Violetta. And, of course, uh, she's author of uh, many, many books, 
has sold more than 20, uh, 75 million books uh, over the years. Uh, from House of the Spirits, uh, Daughter of Fortune, Island Beneath the Sea, Paola, Japanese Lover, Long Petal of the Sea, The Soul of Woman, and as I mentioned, the latest book, Violetta. IsabellaAllende.com is her website, IsabellaAllende.com. And again, our thanks to Isabel Allende for that uh, conversation. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will uh, fill out uh, part of the hour with going back to a conversation of 10 years or so ago, one of my favorite uh, conversations with uh, National Geographic explorer Helen Thayer. We'll have a part of that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Going to the theater isn't what it used to be. Smoking is prohibited throughout the performance, as is texting, eating, laughing, crying, loving, and foraging. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. On this week's Selected Shorts, join us for Satires and Sagas of the Stage. Sunday afternoons at 2 on UPR. On the next On Being, Louisiana's Colette Pichon Battle. The deeper part of spirit that's just really free is out in those bayous, under those trees. And these words that you learn, like magnificent and, and holy and sacred, you see them. You see them in front of you. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Sunday mornings at 11 here on UPR. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. The general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers wants to desegregate professional baseball. There are plenty of Negroes good enough to make it to the majors. I need one who's good enough to be the first. Branch, Ricky, and the entire Negro race, one big, happy family. Ed Asner stars in Mr. Ricky Calls a Meeting, next time on L.A. Theater Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. National Geographic explorer and best-selling author Helen Thayer has truly lived a life of adventure. She was born in New Zealand and uh, made at least part of her life in the United States. She once walked 4,000 miles across the Sahara from Morocco to the Nile River. She's kayaked to 2,200 miles of the Amazon River. She became the first woman to travel alone to any of the world's poles when she skied to the magnetic North Pole without a dog sled, snowbell resupply, or support. We spoke some 10 years or so ago, and since then, at age 80, she became the first person to walk the entire length of Death Valley, north uh, to south, alone. Uh, here's just a portion of that conversation with Helen Thayer. Could you tell us a bit more about that solo uh, trip to the magnetic North Pole? I'm reading from uh, Lisa Schenker's article. She, she covered your uh, uh, talk to the children in Salt Lake City. Uh, I'll just quote from her story. Helen Thayer faced three polar bears on the first day of her expedition to the Magnetic North Pole. 
Nine of her fingers numbed from frostbite. A fierce Arctic storm swept away all of her food, save a small bag of walnuts. Well, it was a very tough journey, to say the least, because I was alone on foot down on the ice with the polar bears, um, living basically on their terms, not mine. Um, and no woman had, um, had made this journey before. No woman had even attempted to, be, to walk to this pole solo. And so I really had to call on my own outdoor experience. And it was uh, very difficult because of the pressure ridges, the polar bears, the weather, the broken ice. But um, I knew that if, and I had trained for two years for it, especially for this journey. And so I was well prepared and I had planned everything right down to the last detail. And so I felt so well prepared. I, I really knew that in spite of the difficulties, I could make it through. And I did. But there were some really scary moments along the way. Tell us about one or two of those. Well, uh, the first, of course, was when I left, took that first step. When I left base camp, took that first step, I knew that I had not yet met a polar bear in the wild. Now, as part of my planning, I had lived with the Inuit people for some time, the Masters of Arctic Survival. They know all there is to know about polar bears and so forth. But in spite of learning, listening, training, I knew I really had to stand up to that first bear and see if I could do it. Well, the first day there were no bears, I saw lots of tracks, and then now at I must explain, too, that I was the only human, but I did have my polar bear dog. I bought a fella I called Charlie from the Inuit. His job was to keep the polar bears out of the village and keep the humans safe, so a perfect companion for me. And I named him Charlie, and off we went. And, of course, he loved those tracks. He put his big black nose down in them and tried to follow them. Well, there was no way I was going to follow a polar bear tracks. I would tell Charlie, I know what's on the other end. No way. And so, but it wasn't until the next day, I was taking my tent down around seven in the morning to start the next day's journey, and suddenly Charlie, who was tethered to my sled, began to growl. And I looked up, and there was my first bear. And she had two cubs at her side, and she was growling. She was very angry that I was there at all. This was not the Arctic Welcoming Committee at all. And I stood there trying to remember everything that I'd been taught, keep passive eye contact, don't turn your back, they told me, don't take a single step backwards, and don't run, because I'd never win the race. Well, I was able to stand and remember what I'd been taught, and it worked. And, of course, Charlie was, um, he went into his defensive mode to defend me and leaping high in the air, snarling and growling. And so the whole thing was working. Charlie was doing his job, as I knew he should, and I was doing mine, as I had been taught. And then about 30 minutes, the, the bear, she turned, took her two cubs away, disappeared into the rough ice. I never saw her again, but now I knew that, although I, I can't tell you how scared I was, I mean, I, my heart was beating so so loudly and so fast, it about leaped out of my chest. But in spite of that extreme fear, I was able to remember what I'd been taught. So now, of course, I knew I'd passed that final test, and I, now I knew that I could do it, and I knew how scary it was, and I was very afraid through this journey many times because I met seven bears um, individually up close and uh, up close and personal, way too personal sometimes, but now I knew I could do it. Uh, I was just going to surmise, and you've said it. You you must have been frightened. You've you've been taught. You have Charlie, but still, is it going to work? I'm sure that's going through your mind. 
Well, that's right. You don't know until the final test comes, and this is such extreme fear because I'm well aware that the last sound I could hear in my life would be the crunch of my own skull because that's how polar bears kill their victims. And polar bears do hunt and kill humans sometimes. So I knew I knew of the danger. I, was, I wasn't out there just being totally oblivious and being some dummy, oh, I think I'll walk to the pole today, and oh, well, the polar bears, they're nice cuddly pets, aren't they? I knew different than that. That's why I had to plan and train so completely. I couldn't leave anything to chance. But now, having passed that final test, and I and described the fear, I don't think there's any way that I can truly ever describe that to anyone. Uh, there's no words to describe the full extent of it. And if I hadn't taken control of myself and basically walked through that door of fear to the other side, I could have panicked and lost control, and of course that would have done me in. And a dog like Charlie is, you know, there's a huge difference in size, but a a dog like Charlie really can be effective against a polar bear? Oh, definitely. These dogs, they choose themselves, basically. The dogs are fed seal meat, frozen seal meat, and the polar bears, of course, this is their food, and they can't, they smell it from a great distance. They come in and try to take it away from the dogs sometimes, and there's a lot of trouble, a lot of fighting. Some dogs just don't survive. Others do survive. But Charlie, when he would race to a polar bear, he would approach head on until the last minute. He would whip his body around to the side and suddenly be at the back of the bear and grab his heel and hang on. And if you can just imagine some a very powerful 100-pound animal determined to defend his owner there uh, and hanging on to that Achilles tendon back there, you can imagine how that bear must feel. What were some of the other barriers uh, that you uh, experienced in, in that trip? Well, um, at one stage, I was um, engulfed in an enormous storm. The first time I was engulfed in a storm, winds, according to my wind meter, were around 70 miles an hour. And then the ice began to break up all around my tent. And, of course, my worry at that point was, would the ice break beneath my tent and drop Charlie and I and my tent into the ocean? And being alone in those days, remember this was in 1988, I didn't have a floatable sled or an immersion suit or, or any of the wonderful things that I could have now that simply didn't exist at that time and so if I'd gone into the water it would have been very difficult to survive and I had to sit a day and a half in that tent hoping that that ice would stay intact beneath my tent floor and the ice was breaking up I was actually in the midst of a major ice breakup and you could be ground into little pieces just like the ice but the ice underneath my tent held fast And a day and a half later, the winds went down. I was able to step out of my tent, and all around me, the ice was just a mess. Lots of open water. So then I had to take my ski pole, push the little pieces of ice together to make these bridges from one ice pan to another, and very carefully pull my sled across, and then carefully pull Charlie's sled across, make another bridge, push the ice together, pile more on top to make it strong enough, and then pull my sled again. And I did this for half a day because I knew if I could go about five miles north, then I would be on thicker ice, according to my charts and so forth. That's a portion of a conversation from 10 years ago or so with National Geographic explorer Helen Thayer. You can find her at helenthayer.com. 
Uh, she's the author of several books, including Polar Dream, Three Among Wolves, Walking the Gobi, and Charlie, the Hero by My Side. On her website, she lists future goals. Uh, she'll continue to explore the remote corners of the world, create educational material for students kindergarten to grade 12 based on her adventures. She was referring there to classroom materials, and you can find those at adventureclassroom.org. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Skywatcher Leo T here. Get out your starry eyes and trace out Monoceros. It's the unicorn dancing behind Orion. Spot this stellar creature in binoculars with star clusters forming his eyes and horn tips. And while you have the binos out, don't miss M41 under bright twinkling Sirius. Messier Object 41 is an open cluster in the constellation Canis Major, the big dog, sometimes referred to as the little beehive cluster. And near the moon in the morning, Zubin el Ganubi, that's the brightest star of Libra. In other deep space exploration, the Hubble telescope scores a rare galaxy crash, creating a cosmic triangle and a tidal wave of star birth. This head-on collision between galaxies has created a vast cosmic triangle in deep space glittering with star formation. And a new image captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. See the Skywatcher site for photos and sources from this segment. And the deep space probe that explored Pluto, NASA's New Horizons, which was the first spacecraft to visit it, and the only one so far. It kept firing way out to a distant Kuiper Belt object known as Ultima Thule. You remember that? Looks like a charcoal briquette in space. It's just one of five spacecraft to reach 50 times the distance between the Sun and the Earth on its way out of the solar system and eventually out into interstellar space joining the Voyager spacecraft. And NASA will launch a rocket to provide a crow's eye view of the Russian-Ukraine situation. Ironically, this rocket built by ULA and the Northrop Grumman Corporation both use Russian-made engines. The same Antares rocket launched to the International Space Station just a couple of days ago with 8,000 pounds of supplies. Here's energy to the little friendship and space we have left with other countries. Hope it can continue in the name of peace. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's one sky, many cultures. Time to take the little spaceship around the globe to Eastern Europe and the Ukraine. In Ukrainian traditional folklore, the Pleiades, or Seven Sisters, can be traced to a storehouse for hay or crops, also known as a granary. It is also seen as the root or hundredth fold glowing or a hundred embers. According to this legend, seven maids lived long ago. They used to dance the traditional round dances and sing the glorious songs to honor the gods. After their death, the gods turned them into water nymphs and having taken them to the heavens, settled them upon the seven stars where they danced round their dances. Symbolic for moving the time to this day. In Ukraine, this glowing cluster is considered the female talisman. The whole earth can enjoy the Pleiades or Seven Sisters in peace with the Ukrainian stargazers. So keep hope going, look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations beaming statewide and streaming live on UPR.org. This is the 15 things Utahns can't live without during a pandemic. On Air Edition, honest reflections from regular people about the objects and things that have mattered most the last two years. This is Jeannie Thomas, and I live in Smithfield, Utah. The main thing I did was get outside a lot, walk my dogs a lot, Iko and Banjo. I have two German Shepherds, or had two German Shepherds. I have one now. Iko and Banjo, and we went on long walks. And Banjo, the younger German Shepherd, is obsessed with chasing the ball. So I had to have a lot of 
balls, a lot of bright orange balls and a large bright green one that was for my big dog, Aiko, and Banjo, the little guy, the littler guy, I should say, he's not that little, chased all the balls every day. So we did a lot of of ball throwing. And that all reminded me of the big cycles of things and how we just participate in larger patterns and the wheel of the world turns regardless of what we do. The seasons turn, the universe turns, and we're just a small part of that. And so while COVID felt really big, it was helpful to think in those larger ways of how the wheel of life turns to to kind of help it not be too big and, and not take over my life. To learn more about the project and to listen to the rest of the stories, go to upr.org. What are the 15 things you can't live without during a pandemic? We set out to find the answer to that question in 2021, launching a photo storytelling project from Cash Arts, Utah Public Radio, and photographer Maria Ellen Hubner. You have an opportunity to see the results of that project right now at the Brigham City Museum of Art and History. The collection of images will be up from February 12th to June 18th, and admission is free, so we hope you'll check it out. For more details about the project, go to upr.org. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. It's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, it's hands-on cooking with chef and chopped judge Manit Chauhan, wonderful cookbook author Don Perry, and we get to introduce you to the newest member of The Splendid Table family, our new podcast, The One Recipe, and its host, Jesse Sparks. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio.